And I just kept sitting there and sitting there and delaying leaving because I just couldn't like figure out what to do. So I was almost paralyzed with like, I don't know what to do in this situation. And I'd slowed way down and, you know, the my days would still finish at like 2 or 3 p.m. I still had time to hike, but I just had no energy left at the end of the day of um, some of this hiking in Vermont that I was doing. I'd really kind of underestimated it. And so I ended up getting off trail, looking through my guidebook that I had and figuring like, oh, there's this town. It's only two miles from the trailhead. So I can road walk or hitchhike the two miles to the town and figure things out from there. Welcome to episode 52 of the Hiking Through Podcast. I'm still a slightly sick Aaron Egan, and this is the podcast where I talk to experienced through hikers about their adventures on the trail and strategies for successfully completing a through hike. Today's guest is Karma, known off trail as Nicole Young. Her through hike of the AT in 2016 and attempt at the mini Triple Crown in 2017 had to be coordinated around a lot of life events. A very relatable problem. In this episode, we talk about being flexible and realistic about how those things interrelate. Expectations versus reality. How being a planned solo hiker mixes with finding a tramley on the first day. And how she hopes her adventures will inspire her new daughter as she grows up. You can find this episode and all previous episodes at hiking-through.com where you can also find show notes, photos, and links for any gear mentioned in this podcast. You can also listen to us on Apple Podcast and all the other podcast places. Enjoy my conversation with Karma. Hey, Aaron, how are you? I am very well. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to chat with you. I am excited as well. Sorry for my confusion. It's been a week. No, I, I can only imagine. Oh, and and you also have some things on your uh, on your calendar as well uh, with a baby coming. Yes, I sure do. We are uh, less than a month away now. Wow. Oh yeah, I know it doesn't seem real. So so which is was more terrifying, going to hike the AT or baby on the way? Ooh. <laughs> Um, I think, I think the baby is a lot scarier, at least hiking the AT. I knew I could leave any time and it was kind of just my thing, but now there's a whole other human involved, not to mention my husband and our families. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't have quite as much control as I would like, but we'll figure it out. (laughs) Yeah. It's sort of in for a penny in for a pound. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, there's certainly no going back now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) When you stepped onto the AT or when you said, okay, I'm going to do the AT, what were the mm-hmm. nerves like at that point? Um, so leading up to it, like my first morning, uh, the morning I was supposed to start hiking, we were staying with my husband's family down in Atlanta. So we were able to fly down there and stay with them. And then he was going to drive me to the trail that day and kind of leading up to it. I kept kind of waiting for somebody to like call my bluff or <laughs> tell me it's not going to happen. And that, that didn't happen. So then all of a sudden the morning of all of a sudden I have to get up now and, you know, finish packing my gear and go hike. And I kind of like tra- kept trying to delay it. So I went and got my haircut. We stopped by the grocery store one last time and 
you know, I didn't even get on trail until like 3 p.m., but I I didn't want to get out of bed that day. Like my husband had to like drag me out of bed and remind me that, you know, we kind of want to get there early. So you still have some time to hike today. So it was definitely like that roller coaster feeling, you know, where you're going up and going up and you're like, I've made a huge mistake, but it's too (laughs) late to back out now. (laughs) Uh, So at that point, you just got to kind of start hiking. And then, I don't know, for me, at least once I get my feet on the trail within 10 minutes, I just feel so much better. So it's just kind of that lead up that's a little, little bit nerve wracking. But then once you start moving, you're like, oh, right, that's all it is. It's walking. I can handle this. Not so bad. Was your husband laughing at you at this point? Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I'd been talking about a through hike for like three years at this point. And then the day had come and I was like, I don't want to. <laughs> so don't yeah, he's a very, <laughs> I know. Yeah. He's like, I'm not making you. <laughs> yeah. No, he's a very like calm, rational, um, very like, you know, my port in the storm. So mm-hmm. he kind of talked me down from being crazy, but yeah, he was definitely appreciating that I was being a little ridiculous at this point. He loves me anyway. God yeah. bless him. <laughs> What were, because I'm sure you guys have talked about this, like what were his emotions like, or what did he share with you in terms of leading into this? And then once you started hiking? Yeah, we did talk about it. I kind of, um, you know, wanted to pick his brain and make sure that he was truly on board and not just humoring me. His one request, I wanted to through hike in 2015, but we were planning a wedding for October of that year. And for some reason, I had it in my head that like, sure, I could plan a wedding while I was through hiking. How hard could that be? And again, him being very calm and rational, he's like, that's not a good idea. <laughs> could you maybe put your hike off for a year? And at the time, that was kind of annoying to me. But um, he was absolutely right. I mean, that would have been a disaster to try to do. So I appreciated him being the voice of reason in that situation. But, you know, he's a super like responsible, down to earth guy. He's um, you know, he would never quit a job without having a backup plan. He's like, you know, the, the, um, the reasonable one of us and I'm the more free spirited one of us. So I think he just kind of went about his day. He would go to work. He would putter around the house on the weekends. He'd see his friends. He, you know, would try to come visit me a couple of times here and there, but mostly he just did his own thing and he was pretty content. So he missed me, but he wasn't like sitting at home doing nothing, just waiting for me to show back up, which, you know, I appreciate that he's independent enough to not feel like he needs me around. And I don't feel like I need to be around to keep an eye on him. So I think we're just really in sync with trusting each other and being good partners and being supportive and not needing to, you know, cling for some kind of sense of security that we don't really need. It's funny that you say you wanted to first do it in 2015, because it sounds like 2017 became sort of the same scenario for you. Yeah, I did. I, I had this idea that maybe I could try the PCT and, you know, I'd gotten the through hiking bug and he did respectfully request that maybe I not do another <laughs> six month through hike, which is a very reasonable thing for a husband to ask. I don't, um, you know, I'm not mad about that. Um, but it did make me, make me think what other things could I do? And I uh, was going to try to do this mini triple crown in 2017. So it would have been, gosh, about, I think, 11 or 1200 miles of hiking. So that would have been the Long Trail, the Colorado Trail, and the John Muir Trail with little breaks in between. So it felt kind of more bite-sized and more manageable. Um, And he was supportive of that. Uh, He would have been totally fine with me going off for a few weeks at a time, a few months at a time, kind of working at a coffee shop in between. He was fine with all that. 
but he ended up getting a job offer in the Bay Area in California out of the blue. I mean, somebody emailed him and asked him if he wanted to move out here for a job. And within a month, he'd interviewed and accepted and we were packing up our house. So um, it did not end up being a summer of hiking as much as I might have liked. So I spent, you know, like a week here, a week there on the long trail. I got to spend 10 days on the John Muir Trail. Conveniently enough, that was a local trail by that point. Um, You know, he was able to drive me to Mount Whitney, which worked out really well. And then I hitchhiked home, which worked out really well. Um, (laughs) I just got like an eight hour hitch from a random guy in the parking lot. It was perfect. Um, We still need to talk about hitchhiking. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll get back there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it would have been great if the plans had worked out. But now we live in California and the hiking out here is amazing. And we both have jobs in tech that we love. And uh, yeah, everything kind of happens for a reason. So I have all these other plans on the back burner now, get to return someday to finish these. So something to look forward to. And and the hiking out here is much different than hiking the AT or hiking the East Coast, actually, even. Yeah, it's so different. You know, there's pros and cons of each. I think the hiking out here on the West Coast is easier because I'm pretty petite. I'm only five foot two. So some of the hand over hand and rock climbing stuff uh, on the AT was really challenging for me. You know, I'd have to like wedge my toes into a crevice and hope that my foot didn't slip while I like threw my pack up to the ledge above (laughs) me and scrambled. Um, So out here, you actually get to use only your feet, which feels easy in some ways. But it's also way more exposed and you have to think more about water and you have to think about, you know, lightning when you're at 12,000 feet going over a pass in the Sierra. So they all have their own challenges, east versus west, but it's kind of a fun new thing to get to explore out here for sure. Yeah. I, I won't ask you to pick your favorite child. <laughs> Thanks. That wouldn't, wouldn't be possible. <laughs> okay. So so circling back to hitchhiking um, uh-huh. and, and actually your husband in this case as well. Like, how concerned was he about this for you? And and how concerned were you for yourself about this? I didn't hitchhike on my own until probably Virginia once I'd gotten a little more comfortable with trail culture and had taken a couple of group hitches and shuttles okay. at that point. It's not something I was like super gung-ho about in the beginning just because it seemed to be like an unnecessary risk that I just didn't feel like I needed to take. It's also probably one of those things I didn't necessarily tell him about <laughs> because it's <laughs> Uh, something that he didn't need to know necessarily. It would just right. kind of create more worry. Him and my mom both, they don't need all the details of what <laughs> I'm doing every day. Um, so yeah, it's something that I kind of eased into. I do it with, you know, hitchhike with a friend at first or like somebody that I'd been chatting with on the trail who happened to be a day hiker who offered me a ride after I got to know them, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, even when I did try to hitch by myself, a lot of times somebody else would show up and we would go together into town or you know, it would turn out uh, that my friends would catch up to me, whatever it was. So there there weren't a ton of crazy hitch stories. When I did hitch, though, I felt safer if I kept my backpack like with me on my lap in case I had to jump out of the car or something quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I always took a picture like before I got in the car, I'd take a picture of the license plate. And if I had service, I'd try to text it to somebody. Um, and I always sat, you know, like the drivers in the front left, so I would sit in the back right. So if they were trying to reach back or anything, they wouldn't be able to like get to me as easily, I guess. So there's little things you can do to make yourself feel a little more comfortable. Um, But ultimately, I also don't think that hitching is super necessary if you don't feel comfortable with it. Or you can always just wait for a friend or call a shuttle or, you know, there's options. It's not something that you have to do. I've heard on the AT, particularly with the advent of Uber and Lyft, that, that the need for hitchhiking has diminished greatly. 
um, on on the PC. Yeah, too, it's a little different. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think. I mean, I haven't I haven't typed the PCT obviously, but yeah, it seems the like GMT there's a lot. <laughs> well, yeah. So the JMT. I mean, it's super remote. You're hours from any sort of real town and a lot of times your hours even from a trailhead where people are parking unlike the AT where you can cross roads all the time or you're walking right by a parking lot or a state park or something you know on the JMT you're a full day from even being able to access a parking lot you have to leave the trail so that's what I did I, I injured my Achilles and you know, my husband was literally in the middle of moving us into our apartment and I just felt like I needed to be home for that so I left the trail and uh talked to one of the employees at near trail ranch who said that he would be able to give me a ride into Fresno at like six o'clock the following day. So, um, you know, I just walked, hiked eight miles out to a very remote parking lot and I was prepared to just kind of like wait there for this guy. And somebody else came along and was nice enough to check and say, Hey, are you okay? Do you need a ride? And I'm thinking this would be great. He can just take me down the mountain. I'll get to Fresno from there. I can get a cheap motel room, look at trains or buses. And he's like, oh, well, I'm actually going to San Jose. And I said, that's actually where I live. Do you mind driving me eight hours to San Jose? <laughs> and he did. And it was great. And he was a really nice guy. He had met up with his daughter on her JMT hike. And he brought her some uh, supplies and just wanted to hike with her for a few days. So we had plenty in common. And we just kind of chatted for an eight-hour ride from the Sierra all the way to San Jose, California. And it worked out perfectly. Needless to say, my husband was pretty surprised to hear from me when I finally got service and said, hey, I'm hitchhiking, met this random guy, Bob, he's bringing me home and I'll see you in about six hours. Can you come get me from his house? So it worked out. Yeah, I can just imagine that call. Um, hey, honey. Yeah. Drive uh, right <laughs> with this random guy named Bob. And yep. And <laughs> and you kind of try to sneakily describe Bob just in case something goes wrong without Bob hearing. But no, he was a great guy. He was really sweet. That's right. You're like, okay, Bob, he's six foot two. He's got glasses and his <laughs> plate number is. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I mean, if you're going to hitchhike, be smart. 99.9% yeah. um, .9 of people have good intentions and genuinely just want to help a hiker out. But you know, it is something that people don't do in their day-to-day -day, so I can see yeah. why they would think it's kind of risky which is fair yeah and and I hear actually a lot of people say that a lot of the times the people who actually are stopping to give a ride are people mm -hmm. who are somehow who have some relationship to the trail they've hiked it they live in the area so they're very familiar with through hikers coming through you know, they have family who've hiked it. There, there's some connection somehow, a lot of times. Yeah, because if you think about it, if you're driving and you see a random hitchhiker, you're not really going to pull over unless you are from the area and know there's a reason that this person with a backpack is hitchhiking. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the kind of people who stop are generally the kind of people who want to help out. And um, Actually, when I was doing a long trail, I gave a guy a ride back to the trail. I was in a McDonald's. I'd finished a section hike and he was clearly a through hiker and I offered him a ride to... Uh, he was going to a hostel actually in town. So it was nice to be able to return the favor too. So, you know, trail magic is a good thing. Good karma. Speaking of. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, karma was name? my trail name. Yep. Uh, I taught little mini yoga classes at the shelters at night. I'm a yoga teacher. So I earned my, my good trail karma, I like to think. You taught mini yoga classes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just want to stretch out at the end of the day. And if there are other people who wanted to stretch out with me, they were welcome to join. 
So uh, hostels and shelters, I would just teach like a 20-minute standing yoga class and give everybody a chance to breathe and relax without their pack on. So I like to think that that helps a little bit. And and that earned you the name Karma? Or was there additional mm-hmm. stuff kind of going on? Uh, it was that too. And also I um, did some fundraising for my hike. I uh, raised, gosh, I think it was over $3,000. I wanted to raise $2,189 and just passed out a little bit to uh, for clean water. So water.org. I uh, set up a fundraising page with them in between family and friends. And I taught some donation yoga classes. I was able to, uh, to yeah, make a pretty good donation to them. So that also felt good. You know, hiking can feel kind of selfish. It's a very like yeah. privileged thing to do. So I wanted to be able to give something back to people who don't have that kind of luxury to just live in the woods for six months. Have you continued to raise money for them? You know, I haven't. I just picked them because water seemed like the most basic of, of you know, modern conveniences, clean water that you can have. And, um, you know, we have all these filters and you stop into town and get a shower and water is just such like a basic thing that you don't think about until you don't have it. So, no, I haven't continued any kind of relationship with them, but they sent me a nice email to thank me for my um, fundraising. So I appreciated that. Beautiful. Yeah. And, and and speaking of 2,189 point, whatever it is, miles, <laughs> yep. how, how's your tattoo doing? Oh, it's great. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice reminder that uh, that, that actually happened because some days it doesn't seem very real. So I appreciate people who get these beautiful like mountain scenes with watercolor effects <laughs> and, you know, but I just wanted something simple. So just, just the 2,189.1 on my ribs. Um, just a nice little souvenir of what I did. I thought it would turn into a whole list, but so far it's still the only one. So someday maybe I'll add to it. So is the, would the goal be to add to it if you do the other longer trails or like what in your mind, what, what was it going to be or what is it going to be bigger picture? Yeah, I think it would literally be like a list of numbers, just kind of like that's something that's meaningful to me. But if somebody else were to see it, they might not necessarily know exactly what this like random list of numbers is on my ribs. But yeah, no, I, I as, although I got to spend time on the Long Trail and John Muir Trail, and I have a lot of other trails that are on my, my mental list, I have not completed any. So it doesn't feel right to uh, memorialize them until they're done. But someday for sure. And, and you've taken a two swings at the John Muir Trail at this point, right? Or just one? Oh, no, just the one. Yeah. I mean, I live not too far from Yosemite. So I can kind of hop over to Yosemite and do, you know, like a short section of it if I want to. But no, at this point, it's just been the one the one attempt starting uh, down near Mount Whitney and coming up north. And I did about 100 and maybe 110 miles over nine days, something like that. So I've got the whole middle bit still to do, which I'm still very excited about. And you know, could do it in a, a week's vacation once yeah. I uh, have the kiddo settled and want to take some time <laughs> off of work. It would definitely be a possibility to get back out there pretty easily. Just a little leg stretch. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> Just bang it out. As compared to when you stepped foot on the AT, I would assume, or I would think that you know, stepping foot on the long trail or stepping foot on the JMT wasn't as nervous, or you weren't as nervous about that? Um, that's a good question. Yes and no. Every trail, you know, it has its unknowns. Absolutely. Um, with the long trail, I knew it was going to be way more remote and it was going to be some of the 
like if you take the hardest hiking of the the whites and the Vermont section of the AT, you do that plus you are probably alone a lot of the time. So it was like different sets of worries. I didn't know what the terrain would be like. I wasn't in the kind of shape I had been when through hiking and hitting Vermont and New Hampshire before. So I had uh, kind of unrealistic expectations for mileage. And once I slowed down and stopped trying to push the same kind of miles I had done previously, it got a lot easier. Um, and then I knew what to expect when I went back and did more sections. But Vermont's pretty tough. It's uh, It's a lot of rock climbing and scrambling and mud and yeah loneliness sometimes so you think like well if I haven't seen a person in eight hours and something happened to me that means my odds of being rescued are a lot lower um, and same thing with the John Muir Trail it just felt super remote you like I said you're at least a day's hike from even a parking lot let alone a town or any kind of assistance um, and there was the altitude and the weather and that was a really big snow year and like I said I'm you know only five foot two so you're dealing with water crossings up to your waist and you know, there's always their own hazards. So even though I was confident that I could handle it, I tried not to be too cocky because you just <laughs> never know what the trail is going to throw at you and what you haven't prepared for, what you might have forgotten, or you can always get hurt. So it's never predictable. Cocky is what gets you killed. Yeah, I try to avoid that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be a real bummer. I, it would not be my preferred way to go, for sure. When you started the AT, you were a solo hiker. But mm -hmm. you found a trail family pretty quickly and then pretty yeah. much hiked with them the entire time, correct? Yeah, exactly. My very first night out, I met four people. Three of them had started together and one was a fellow solo hiker. And out of those four people, three of them and myself ended up summiting together at Katahdin. So I didn't want a trail family. I didn't wasn't seeking one out. I kind of thought that like that would defeat the purpose of doing a solo hike. I'd end up changing or adjusting my plans for this group of strangers, but we just got along so well and our paces were similar and they just made the experience so much more fun that it just kind of like happened naturally. And then all of a sudden we were like a month in and had hiked every day together. And we were like, this is kind of working really well. So, you know, we wouldn't literally like hike in a line or a group all day. You just kind of plan where you're going to meet up that night and somebody rolls in, you know, an hour later, but you're all there to have dinner and then you have breakfast in the morning and kind of plan out your next day or you talk about resupplies. And yeah, I never felt like I had to change my hiking pace or change anything because of them, which I really appreciated. So yeah, they were just a great group of people and we still have a group chat going and they actually just sent me baby gifts, which was so sweet. So yeah, they're just, it just worked out so well. And I just feel really lucky that I met them when I did. And we happened to start the same day and it just kind of happened. Did you ever question, I mean, because you did start as a solo hiker and, and you wanted to do the solo thing at least for a while. Um, yeah. Did you ever question or think about the trade-offs that, that you were making and, and come to some resolution about that or... Did it just not even bother you at that point? For the first month or so, it, it didn't really come up because everybody's kind of new. Nobody really has a plan yet. So we were all kind of happy to just go with the flow. And it happened that we were all on the same page about how many miles we wanted to do and how quickly we wanted to move and when we wanted to stop. Later on, I think there came a point where it's like, you know, should I be meeting other people? Or am I sure that I haven't changed my plans because of this group? And you kind of reevaluate and Obviously, there's plenty of time to just think while you're hiking. Um, <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. 
Uh, but, you know, there'd be times when we would like take a night off, somebody would go ahead and we'd catch up or somebody was injured and had to go home. So I think we all got enough alone time that we it made us appreciate each other and, you mm-hmm. know, feel confident in our decision to continue hiking together. It never felt like codependency. Um, and especially later in the hike, once, you know, one of the um, women in our group left the trail at Harper's Ferry and we all kind of did some reevaluating and soul searching at that point. And another woman left in uh, Connecticut and that was really tough because she'd made it that far and decided to leave. So there would be nights here and there we'd split up or somebody just said, look, I need some alone time or I don't want to go into town with you. I'll just see you in a few days. And everybody was fine with that. We were all, you know, we trusted each other and we were all confident enough in ourselves and in each other in our own plans that it never felt like, um, you know, mandatory hangout time or anything like that. So I think that really helped that everybody was pretty laid back. Right. Nobody felt offended or hurt by somebody saying I need some alone time or I just I can't do this. I'm getting off trail. Yeah. I mean, I think there's always a little bit of hurt maybe when somebody chooses to leave the trail, you know, like this is something I'm choosing to do. Why are you kind of no longer into it? Am I missing something? Am I making the right choice? And um, it makes you reevaluate for sure. And it's, you know, it feels a little bit like being abandoned sometimes. Um, you know, we been through so much together and you've chosen to leave and but I don't think there were any like hard feelings over it it just does kind of make you think and double check and make sure yeah I really want to be here this is the place for me right now which almost kind of makes your your resolve even stronger to keep going than you know if you never question it but and you did get off trail for a little bit because you had to go to a wedding Mm -hmm. yeah I when I hit Harper's Ferry I um, surprised my husband and I came home for What's that? I was going to say, so this wasn't the plan. No, uh, it was my plan once I realized that um, because the timing had worked out that I would be able to do this. And his birthday is also July 10th. So it was close enough together that I wanted to take a few days off and go spend some time with him. Um, So I reached out to the bride on Facebook and said, can you please secretly RSVP me and not tell (laughs) Skylar? And she was happy to do that. Um, He'd been planning to go to the wedding alone. And uh, yeah, so I hiked ahead of my trail family. This is one of those times we split up and they totally understood. And I got to Harper's Ferry, took the train to DC, a bus up to New York City, and then a train out to my town and surprised my husband at night and uh, walked into my house and hadn't showered in about four days. And he said, I love you and I'm so happy to see you, but would you mind maybe just grabbing a quick shower before we <laughs> hang out? <laughs> and I said, that's a very reasonable request. Yeah. And I got to spend, I think it was five or six days home with him. And uh, we went to the wedding and had a great time. And it was very surreal to like put on a dress and heels and makeup. Mm. And, you know, some of the people there knew what I was up to and they wanted to ask about it. And I probably was behaving very strangely and telling people like, oh, I'm wearing deodorant. This is so (laughs) weird. And they're like, this is not something you talk about at a wedding. But, you know, we had a great time and he was surprised and we got to spend some time together. He had a couple of days off of work because of the holiday. And that was like my little birthday gift to him. So that was a nice little break. And then I got back to the trail and hiked some big mile days and caught up to my friends. And so we spent probably about a week and a half apart at that point. But it all worked out and they totally understood and they were supportive. And my husband was happy and I got a nice little mental break. When you came back to the trail, did you come back to the trail at Harper's Ferry or did you kind of skip I did. a little bit? Okay. So you. Yeah, no, I didn't want to skip ahead. That was okay. just my own thing at that point. Um, so I just hiked some big days and they kind of slowed down a little bit to wait for me without stopping entirely. And it took me about, I think, four or five days to catch up to them. I met them in a 
Pennsylvania. So I hiked all of Maryland by myself, but it was kind of fun to just have that quality time just at my own pace, just relaxing and making some new friends and doing the solo thing for a little while. Yeah. When you say hiked big miles, what, what did that translate to? So I did my two biggest days in Pennsylvania. It was a kind of the flatter part of Southern Pennsylvania. So um, like where it's all farmland and you're just walking across these fields. But I did um, two 30 mile days back to back to try to catch up to them at the end there. And I was able to do it um, because they had where they were doing like the normal, you know, 16 to 18 or so. Mm -hmm. So um, I was able to sneak up on them. It worked out pretty well. How were your feet? I mean, (laughs) I I saw the picture from the marathon day. (laughs) Oh, that was was gross. That was earlier in the trail, but still. Yeah, that was a rough day. So overall, my feet actually held up pretty well. I didn't get any blisters until a month in, which was that first marathon day. And I think it's because that's when it started getting really hot and my feet started sweating and I was still wearing my thick wool socks. So when you have that thick wool and your feet sweat and swell and you've got all the salt in there and it just kind of like rubbed all the skin off my toes, it was oh, it was so gross. Um, and I would kind of deal with blisters on and off from there onwards, but usually, I mean, we would just like, you get a blister, you pop it with a pin and then you cover it up with some Neosporin and some tape and just leave it for a few days. And then it's just kind of not a problem anymore. It's pretty gross thinking back on it, but you know, when you pop it, you relieve a lot of the pressure and it's just no longer a problem. So that's kind of the only option sometimes. Yeah. The picture is, I mean, your feet look tortured. (laughs) Yeah, they didn't hurt as badly as they look like they should. It's mostly just like dry skin because you're sweating and then you like leave your feet in these wet socks for hours. And then, you know, at night, the best feeling in the world is just peeling your socks off and letting your feet just air out. Um, so luckily, other than that, that one marathon day, the first one, when I needed a couple of days off to recover, none of my blisters were like debilitating or, you know, had made me have to slow down or anything like that. But plenty of other people had much worse, worse feet issues than I did. So I'm pretty lucky. Did you change your socks at that point from like the heavy? Oh yeah. Something? Yeah, for sure. I, um, that day we arrived in, um, uh, uh, oh, I'm blanking the town in Virginia, 500 miles in, uh, where trail days is held. Anyway, <laughs> there are oh, plenty okay. of outfitters there. So I was able to swap out and get some thinner liner socks and toe socks that I hiked in instead. So I would swap out my socks every now and then if I felt like they just weren't working for me. And that usually solved my problem. But there was there was still there was also, I should say, uh, uh, a shot, a beautiful shot of you soaking your feet in the sink. <laughs> yes. Epsom salt to the rescue. Yes, that was kind of our go to like trail family thing is we'd find a CVS and buy a a carton of Epsom salts and fill up whatever nasty bathtub in the hostel or hotel we were in. And we'd all just stand around and soak our feet. Um, that was more like if they were sore or like just kind of been torn up a little bit that just like that hot soak just felt amazing after a couple long days of having like dirty, sweaty, gritty feet, it's like a little luxury that we could treat ourselves to. And it was a, a nice bonding activity for us. <laughs> a community Epsom salt bag. I love it. Yeah, exactly. Which again, you know, like years later is like, that sounds absolutely disgusting. But at the time it was like the (laughs) ultimate luxury that we could think of. So it was really nice. Did being on the trail and doing that hike and and kind of the pieces of the subsequent hikes that you've done change your perspective on luxury and what, what you need versus what you want? 
Um, yeah, for sure. Especially soon after the hike, like the first few months after the hike. Um, you know, it's like, oh, I, I get to lay in a bed every night, like with air conditioning and a pillow. And this is so nice. And it's the little things are like, I can shower every day and I can like wash my hands whenever I want. Like all these little things that you don't think about. They really like you really, really appreciate them, especially in your first few months after the hike. And it's just like super satisfying. It feels like, you know, I've earned this privilege to be able to, you know, microwave something hot for myself to eat or whatever it is, you know, without any effort. And I, I would hope that now, even three years later, that like I kind of still have some of that perspective. I'm definitely more of a minimalist now. Um, you know, I just feel like I don't need as much stuff and what I do have doesn't have to be perfect because it's good enough. And I think the the big difference too is like, you know, this minimal mindset kind of like, this is fine. You know, if things aren't perfect, it's not the end of the world. If, if, you know, somebody cuts me off in traffic, it's just not that big a deal. Or if I'm like mildly inconvenienced at the grocery store, it's just, you know, I'm not going to like throw a fit and demand to see the manager. And I think it's just this feeling of like, when you've cut everything back to like the bare minimum survival essentials, and you've been in situations where like, maybe your life isn't in danger, that's a little dramatic, but like, Hmm. you could get pretty hurt, or like, you really need to be smart and think about this and use your resources wisely and like, make a good decision here. Coming back to the the real world where everything is just so easy for us. It's like, you know, things could be so much harder. Like, why are we making a big deal out of this minor modern world inconvenience? So I think that's the thing I've kept with me more than anything is just this sense of like, I'm very much less um, like flappable and much less likely to get worked up over something that really doesn't matter um, and much more laid back and relaxed about like life is actually pretty good and pretty easy. So I really don't have anything to complain about. Um, and I hope I carry that with me now indefinitely. I think I, at this point, if I've kept it going, I think I probably will. I hope so anyway. Yeah. It, it kind of feels like it, this is, you know, three years on it's, it's become part of you now. I hope so. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sure I've probably gotten soft again and gotten used to certain luxuries and <laughs> like, um, you know, <laughs> like hot water and air conditioning and a refrigerator full of vegetables and Netflix and things like that. Like those, I definitely am happy to have back in my life, but I think more like that mindset. Yeah. I hope that stays with me of like, you know, this is just not a big deal. And then like, why would we complain about how easy our life really is? Yeah. It's, it's all about perspective. It really is. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Perspective. And you just get a whole new one when you take time off and go live in the woods for six months. It's so interesting. I I hadn't actually really thought about this or put this in perspective, so to speak. You know, but but you see pictures of of people, of families, of, of kids, adults, you know, whatever, in in third world countries and you know, they're living their life the way a through hiker lives their life every, you know, they're living their lives every day like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's something that a lot of people forget about is like, when you're a through hiker, yeah, you tend to be broke and you tend to be dirty. And, you know, it's a kind of a tough life relative to what your friends are doing. But like, mm-hmm. again, for some perspective, it is such a privilege to be able to through hike, like, be able to take months off of work and to be able to, 
you know, leave everything behind with family and friends and trust other people will take care of some things for you and to be able to save up money. I mean, even so many people, even right here in America, like they live paycheck to paycheck and could never fathom giving up work voluntarily for five months. So something I've tried to remind people is like, yeah, you know, through hiking is hard, but in the grand scheme of things, it is such a privileged thing to be able to do. And we shouldn't lose track of that. So hopefully, you know, the communities that I'm part of, I try to remind people like, you know, you are very, very lucky to even be able to consider the luxury of a through hike. So, you know, don't pretend like it's this hardship. It's actually something that you've chosen to do. So like, please keep that in mind. Yeah. Well, and I think you just, you hit on it. It's, it's a choice. Like you can choose to. Um, mm-hmm. And and I know that a lot of people, once they start through hiking or once they do their first trail, it, you know, they get bitten by the bug as you have been. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, they choose to, to focus their life on getting to the next trail, but it is always still a choice type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even I have friends who work seasonal jobs and they hike in the summers and bartend or whatever in the winters. And, you know, you might look at them and think like, oh, like they're kind of struggling. Maybe they don't have a lot of money, but they do all that in service of this hobby that they've fallen in love with. And that's fantastic that they can organize their lives and make that their priority. But like, let's not pretend that, you know, they're stuck in this (laughs) service job because of some like you know, hardship in their life. Like, yes, it's, it's, it's hard to through hike and I worked very hard, but I was also just super lucky that I had supportive people in my life and I was able to, you know, be able-bodied enough to work a bunch of jobs to save up the money yeah. and that, you know, my husband was able to stay home and keep an eye on our house. And so, yeah, I just, I just want to emphasize, like, it is a privilege and an honor and a luxury to be able to through hike. And I hope that the people who do attempt it, keep that in mind. I, I also find it really interesting in conjunction with that, I love that, I guess, after doing that first trail or falling in love with through hiking or whatever, that people get such clarity about what is important to them versus what is less important or not important for them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the people who do choose to rearrange their lives and do seasonal work or save up for years to through hike, you know, I run a women's Facebook group of 20,000 women who, and you know, some of them are like, oh, I, I wish I'd through hiked when I was younger. Now I have kids or I have a mortgage and, you know, the people who prioritize it, they can really make it happen. But, um, you know, going, you know, not everybody has that luxury, but if you do have the option, then you can absolutely make it your priority. And instead of buying a fancy car and going clothes shopping, and going out to eat, you can save up all your money for a through hike. And I think that's awesome that people do prioritize and minimize and keep their lives simple and just pursue this like awesome goal of just being in the woods as much as possible. I think that's fantastic. I, I've in talking with so many people at this point, it it always amazes me. And I, I don't know why I'm still surprised by this, but it always amazes me how therapeutic the woods can be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, people say their lives change when they just spend, you know, a weekend in the woods. And it just, like you said, it's all about the perspective and realizing what's really important to them. But um, yeah, there's all kinds of interesting scientific theories about like what happens to our bodies when we're surrounded by nature and when we disconnect from artificial lighting and technology. And it's pretty cool what that can do for people. It's really awesome to hear about people who really like transform their themselves and their lives just by going out and hiking, just walking in the woods, even one day a week, whatever you can get. Awesome. 
So I, I would imagine that you've probably looked at some of these studies of research and research. A little bit. I mean, I've read the pop culture <laughs> blogs and everything about how, you know, the Japanese forest bathing and how it like deionizes your body. And that's why you feel less stressed. And when you connect your body to the ground, you're discharging electrical charges or something. It's all, yeah, it's all really interesting. And it just, it can actually change your brain and change how your mind works. And I think it's a really cool thing that people are studying scientifically. And I, I would love to keep reading up about it and learn more because it, it, there's certainly no harm in it. So, you know, bring on all the studies we can about how we need to spend more time in the woods. Of all the quote unquote bad habits that people can get into, being in the woods is probably (laughs) (laughs) definitely I mean it can be disruptive if you want to live a normal nine to five life but otherwise I think it's probably one of the best things you can do when you through hiked you started listening to podcasts Mm -hmm. what were some of the podcasts that you listened to while you were out there Ooh, yeah I'd never listened to podcasts before I didn't really understand what they were (laughs) um (laughs) Let's see. Okay. So I listened to Serial because everybody was telling me about how good it was. So that was probably my first experience and I really enjoyed it. I found a couple of long running. I found the Tough Girl podcast, which is all about women who are doing amazing athletic things. Um, and actually I have since met the woman who runs it. She's out of the UK and she has since through hiked and she actually did an AT through hike in a hundred days. I think, wait, Sarah Williams, you interviewed yeah, her, right? I did. I did. Yeah. Yeah. So that was incredible. Like, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I was going to ask you, because you actually met her before she did the hike. Yeah, I happened to be in London, and she was doing a talk. She had run the Marathon des Sables, mm-hmm. um, which is like a five-day marathon a day across the Sahara Desert. And she was doing a talk about it in London at a time when I was there. And so she and I chatted after the talk, and she had been talking a little bit about also you know, her upcoming plans for her through hike. And she was kind of nervous and excited for it. And so we just connected a little bit afterward and chatted a little bit. And, you know, even having done a through hike, I was just so in awe of her plan to do it in a hundred days. And I was a little (laughs) skeptical, to be honest, thinking like, "Eh, I don't know if she knows what she's getting into, but she crushed it. She was amazing. She came in under the, just under the wire. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) Yeah, she cut it close, but she got it done. Yeah. So I would listen to her podcast while I was hiking and it was full of stories of women who have done just incredible things. Um, so it was a really inspirational one to listen to. What, now what, what did you, when you met her and you guys talked, mm-hmm. like what, what advice did you give her? Um, she's big into a lot of like the psychological aspects of adventuring. Um, she's obviously in fantastic shape and, you know, she physically could handle anything, but a lot of her concerns were things that a lot of people worry about, like bears and, you know, what if I can't do it? What if I want to quit? So many people quit. How do I have the will to keep going? So we talked a little bit about that. I think I told her like the best advice that I got was make a list of everything that you're scared of. And then also a list of like how you'll kind of deal with those. So like, if I'm cold, you know, I'll do X, Y, Z. If I see a bear, I'll do this. If it's, you know, there's lightning and I'm on top of a mountain. Here's what I know I need to do. So kind of like the most planning and prep that you can do, I feel like is how you can set yourself up for success because it's when you're facing all these sort of unknowns and you're not prepared for them. That's when you kind of panic and retreat to your comfort zone. So I think that's something we talked about. I also told her that bears just aren't really that big a deal. Everybody worries (laughs) about bears on the AT, but I mean, 
they're so scared of you. They like trip over themselves trying to run away for the most part. So um, it's a very common fear, but not one that you really need to, uh, to, to think too much about and adjust your plans too much for. So I just tried to encourage her without, you know, um, I don't know. I didn't want to like do the, the woman version of mansplaining to her <laughs> <laughs> for lack of a better term. I, I didn't want it to be like, well, I've done this and I have all the answers and this is how you have to do it. You know, she's perfectly capable and competent. So I wanted to just give her like some tools and then she could figure it out from there. That's funny. Which she obviously did because yeah, she was yes. amazing. She, she very obviously did. So what was on your fears list? Ooh, trying to remember back. Um, I think I had this vision of myself like at a shelter with no friends alone in my tent, just being sad and lonely. You know, when I threw hiked, I was newly married. I was 30. I was, you know, older than a lot of people who do it, but also younger than the big retiree group who does it. So I just wasn't sure that I'd have much in common with people. I'm not a big partier. I wasn't there to like, you know, hit the towns and do the 24 beers in 24 hours challenge or anything <laughs> like that. So I just wasn't sure about that whole party atmosphere and if I'd still be able to find people that I had much in common with. Because um, I didn't want to spend, you know, five, six months just hiking alone, which ended up not at all being the problem. If anything, you kind of like want some alone time and you don't get it because there's so many people. Yeah. Um, but they're all awesome. Like you have so much in common just by being out there and doing a hike that even if it's somebody you wouldn't necessarily talk to in the real world or feel like you had much in common with, you can chat with them for hours about hiking and the trail and other adventures they've had. And you always have like that kind of common ground to come back to. So that ended up not being really a concern. I definitely missed my husband. I missed my friends. I missed my family. There were some, you know, events and things over the summer that I couldn't attend because I was on the trail instead of in town. So I feel like I missed out a little bit on that socializing, but what I got instead was it was different, but yeah, just as good and just as fun and met so many amazing people that I never felt alone at any point, which was really nice. When you were making out your list and you were responding to it before you got on the trail and saying, okay, mm -hmm. you know, um, I'm going to miss out on all of these things. What were your, what, 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 what did you write on, on that list or, you know, as your, your a counterpoint to that, to that fear and then when it actually was on the trail, how was that in comparison to what you thought it was going to be? Hmm, I think that was probably the one fear that I didn't have a lot of like, here's what I can do about it. I just kind of had to wait and see how I felt and then deal with it as it came up. But I think what I kept coming back to is, you know, I'm choosing to be out here. I can also choose to leave at any time if it's truly that bad. So every day it's kind of you wake up and you check in, like, do I still want to be here? Yes. Okay. Then let's go hike. And if the answer is no, then you can either go home right then, or you can think about it and check in again the next day and see if it's still a no. So I think kind of having that fallback option, like being from the East coast at that point, knowing that within 24 hours, I could probably find my way home and knowing that that was like a backup reserve kind of option that helped with a lot of like the, uh, you know, am I making the right choice to be here? Is this the right thing for me? Um, knowing that I could be home and I was choosing to stay on the trail, that's kind of a big empowering thing. So that's what helped me as I was kind of going along day to day. I think other things, same thing. It's like, you know, it's only for five or six months. You can handle pretty much anything for five or six months. 
if you have a crappy, rainy, cold day, you maybe have a couple of them in a row, but a week later, you will have dried out and warmed up and you're not probably going to die from it. So you're just uncomfortable for a little while. So I think kind of reminding myself, A, that I was choosing to be there, B, that I could leave at any time and C, that all of this discomfort was temporary. That kind of was like a blanket, like I can handle this because it's just for a short time and it's not going to kill me and I will be fine. And, you know, like some cheesy inspirational quotations, <laughs> like, you know, pain is temporary, but pride is forever, like those kinds of terrible things. But when you're exhausted and cold and hungry and grumpy, that really does kind of help keep your spirits up. So um, I found a lot of comfort in just like reminding myself again, like I'm lucky. This is my one shot. I am choosing to be here. It is temporary discomfort, but it is like a lifetime of good memories and, and overcoming challenges, I think was what kind of kept me from panicking too much about the challenges that I knew I would face and also the ones that came up that were kind of unexpected. What were some difficult days for you on the trail? Uh, I think the most difficult days were the ones where I was bored. So at least when you're uncomfortable, like if you're cold and you're wet and it's raining or snowing and you're doing, you know, 20 miles in a day, there's like a secret sort of sadistic satisfaction and like, hmm, this sucks and I'm still doing great. So <laughs> that kind of like is its own sense of pride and like there's a certain mm -hmm. amount of like, yeah, self-torture and voluntary discomfort involved in hiking. So it's like, yes, this is what it's supposed to be like. It's supposed to suck sometimes. And if it didn't, everybody would do it. So I'm clearly a badass because I'm surviving this. So then like the actual worst days were the ones where I was just bored. Like, why am I out here? I'm hot. This is like not scenic. Like Pennsylvania has a bad rep, but like it's a very deserved bad rep. It was so like, there was no satisfaction in Pennsylvania. It's just rocky. It was hot. A lot of the water sources were dry. My feet were torn up. I was just bored all day hiking in the green tunnel on this like very nondescript trail. And that's kind of when it's like, why am I even here? This isn't fun. It's not even challenging. It's just boring for like with no reward. That's I think when I really um, suffered the most was when it when it just wasn't interesting in any way, like not difficult, not easy, just kind of blah. Um, and I think a lot of people that I met probably felt similarly. I don't know if it's because of the timing, like at that point, you've been on trail for three plus months, it's just not as new and exciting. Or if it's genuinely because Pennsylvania is that like terrible, I'm sorry to pick <laughs> on it. But that's where I had my personal low moments. Yeah, I think when it felt pointless, that's probably when I struggled the most, as opposed to like when it was hard. At least when it's hard, you can focus on the difficulty of it. You can focus on the challenge of getting through it. Yeah, it keeps your like keeps your mind it. occupied. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's some satisfaction when you finish a day. Like that was hard, but I did it. Yeah, as opposed to just like slogging through with no real purpose or reward or satisfaction. Yeah, definitely. You you start to ask, what am I actually getting out of this? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yep. And and I've heard that Pennsylvania is rather rocky. Oh my God. It's just like, you can't get into a rhythm with walking there. So it's, you're stepping on rocks and over rocks and kind of stutter stepping and kind of like, you know, weaving back and forth to try to find any smooth ground on the trail. And it's just like, oh, it's just no fun. And it's, you have to keep your mind engaged to like watch where you're stepping, but it's also boring. So it's just like this weird, like mentally draining 
I don't know. I, yeah, I just, I did not, <laughs> I did not care for Pennsylvania. Sorry, not sorry to Pennsylvanians <laughs> and people who love it, but yeah, not my favorite state at all. Well, and after having gone through so many states, there's actually some comparison going on here. That's true. Yeah. And, you know, they kind of all have their own character and charm and Southern Pennsylvania was lovely. It's where all the fields were and all the farms and you just walk through these like beautiful fields and cute little towns in the South. And then you get up North and it's just like, "Mm, no, this isn't fun anymore. I don't like it. Yeah. It's so funny to to hear people talk about the AT when you are, you know, I'm exaggerating here, but every other day you're getting into a new state and you're, you know, what have you. And, and then people come from the AT and they come over to the PCT and and we're still in California (laughs) for what, like 1200 miles or something. Do you know what it is? 1700 miles. Oh my God. Yeah. So I guess you have to have other things to look forward to in California, (laughs) (laughs) but I mean, as, as now a new Californian, I can say that we have a very diverse state. There's a lot to see here. Um, Pennsylvania certainly can't compare to the Sierra, that's for sure. Yeah, and the Sierra this year was wicked. Oh, that's what I hear. Yeah, this year I heard people, um, you know, delaying and skipping and all kinds of crazy stuff. And they're changing the permits now, right? Where, like, you can't get a thru-hiker permit if you skip the Sierra. Oh, I hadn't heard that. What, yeah, what I think heard? if you... Tell. Yeah, if I remember correctly, I think if you opt to skip... So if you're hiking north and you opt to skip, your permit is no longer valid because you're no longer technically through hiking. So I don't know wow. how it's going to be policed or like, yeah. you know, the the concern, I think, is that it will force people to continue onward when maybe the conditions aren't super safe. But they're doing it from a conservation perspective, which I can also understand. So um, I don't know enough to speak super knowledgeably about it, but it doesn't seem like mm. a very friendly situation. So I'm curious to see how that will go and how through hikers this year will deal with it. So, you know, stay tuned. Yeah, no, I, I'm definitely going to have to, to research this a little bit more. I mean, obviously I don't have plans to skip the Sierras, but let's wait and see what kind of winter we have before you say that. (laughs) No, exactly. I mean, well, the, the first permit window opens on Tuesday. Oh, good luck. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, you know, so you get your permit on, you know, or you ask, you request your permit on, on Tuesday. But yeah, there's no, there's no knowing how the winter is going to, to show up. Yeah. Yeah, it can be, it can be brutal. Yeah. And, and it's interesting they're taking that tack because, you know, I mean, some of going further north, Oregon, Washington, and so forth is going to be, to me, I guess, the less traveled, uh, part of the parts of the trail because in general, because people, if they start Sobo, you know, and then they get off the trail, they're never even going to hit that area. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Um, so it, it's interesting, but I'm, I have to research. I have to yeah. get my little fingers walking. <laughs> well, I can't wait to hear what you uh, end up doing. Yeah. <laughs> well, the plan is starting in Campo and, and heading North. Uh, there you go. The Keep it simple. Exactly. <laughs> How hard could it be? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. How hard could it be? <sighs> you know, and then there's always the also the thing with, you know, burdens or fires, especially as you had you get into Northern California and Oregon and Washington. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's true. So you've got snow, you've got fires, you've got all kinds of interesting challenges that you don't get on the East Coast. So yeah, like, you know, conversation coming full circle, every trail is different, has its own set of challenges. You just have to 
do your due diligence and prepare and just plan and do what's best and safest for you. So I'm sure that you will be successful. It just might be, you know, not according to plan. It's funny that you say that because having now talked to all of these people, I think that's the one, the one and biggest takeaway that I've gotten from all of these conversations, which is it never goes according to plan. Yeah. What, whatever is in your head. There's a, uh, I think it's Mike Tyson. There's a quotation from him. It's yeah. like, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face, which is yeah. exactly what through hiking feels like is you can sit down and plan out all your mail drops and say, I'm going to be here on this date. And I'm going to hike this many miles per day with this many zeros, but you just don't know until you get there. So by all means plan, if it makes you feel better, <laughs> but also be willing to completely throw that out the window. Well, and and speaking of planning, mm-hmm. you seem to have been and seem to be quite the planner and quite the, the tracker, like data tracker. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I um I find that very satisfying to like quantify things, especially after the fact. So in my, you know, the AWOL guide for the AT, where it's like that guidebook that everybody uses, um, I would write in it everywhere that I spent the night. And then when I got home, I went back and made like an Excel spreadsheet of everywhere that I spent the night and how many miles I hiked and any notable things that day. And um, I track every like dollar that I spent because, you know, these are questions that I had when I was starting. And after the fact, you're not going to remember it as well. So I thought, you know, by keeping good track of these kinds of things, it might help others in the future. Or if nothing else, like it's my very nerdy way of almost keeping a little journal of where I was and what I did and how I was feeling. And I try to remember like, oh, where were, what day were we in this one town? And what was the weather like? And I can look back at my spreadsheet and think like, oh, yeah, that's the day we ate at this restaurant, because I have this credit card charge that I specifically remember like what I had to eat and where I was. So that was kind of my version of keeping a journal. So I do a lot of spreadsheeting. <laughs> I do find it very satisfying. <laughs> so yeah, plan. like I said, I love to plan. <clears throat> yeah, I love the details. I love planning. I love nothing more than like sitting down and planning something out. But I'm also equally happy when I hop on trail and all of a sudden I have to throw it out the window and just kind of wing it. So I get, it's a nice thing that I enjoy both parts of that because um, life would be very hard if I wasn't flexible at all. But you know, yeah. plenty of people are perfectly successful without planning more than a week ahead of time. One of the women I met was through hiking and she had only decided a couple of days before to do the AT and she didn't even know what states it went through. She just kind of signed up and showed up with some friends and she did great. <laughs> so all kinds can be successful. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> exactly. How are you with having to throw the plans out the window and just go with the flow? I think I'm pretty good with it. You know, if you're talking about like, throw the plans out the window, like I'm supposed to through hike this year, and now I can't, that would be a a very disappointing thing to go through. But if you're talking about like, oh, I've been planning to do 15 miles a day for the next two weeks to get to this town on time, um, then I don't mind so much if you have to kind of reshuffle things. And, you know, as long as you have the information you need to stay safe, like I know how many days it is to food. I'm, I'm pretty fine with that. I'm, I think I do pretty well with like, kind of winging it to some extent again as long as you are winging it in a safe way and not winging it like I have 10 days to hike and only five days of food so I guess I'm going to wing it that's not so good but yeah I I like I like to think I'm flexible enough and maybe that's part of like the this will all work out kind of attitude that I've figured out along the way 
So maybe that's the kind of laid back thing that I've learned and adopted since through hiking. And I hope, yeah, like I said, I hope I kind of can stick with that and not stress out over things that just don't really matter too much. Was was there a moment on the trail when things had to change, when when plans had to change, where you're just kind of standing there and and yes, you're going to go with the flow and you're going to move to the new the way the new plans have to go, but mm-hmm. but for a moment you have or you allow yourself to have a moment and you're like kind of to the universe to the trail. Really? Really you had to do that? <laughs> Daily. <laughs> Um, yeah, for sure. Especially on the long trail. I know I said that I tried not to be too cocky, but I was kind of thinking like, oh, the long trail is the easiest trail I have planned this summer. I've already done half of it. How hard could the other half be? (laughs) And I'm like, you know, naively thinking like, I'm going to just bang out like 16 mile days like I did when I was in Southern Vermont. Like, never mind that I haven't really hiked in a year. And, you know, starting up north, it's a whole different experience. It's a lot more rugged. So my first couple days on the long trail, I was definitely struggling because I had this like this plan of where I needed to be. Um, and I'd left my car where I needed to be. And it involved me <laughs> doing a lot more miles than what I ended up doing. So that was a bit of a panic moment of like, well, I kind of have to get there. And I only have this many days of food. So, oh, crap, what do I do? And I remember there was one day where I was just sitting in the shelter And I just kept sitting there and sitting there and delaying leaving because I just couldn't like figure out what to do. So I was almost paralyzed with, I don't know what to do in this situation. And I'd slowed way down and, you know, the, my days would still finish at like two or 3 PM. I still had time to hike, but I just had no energy left at the end of the day of um, some of this hiking in Vermont that I was doing. I'd really kind of underestimated it. And so I ended up getting off trail looking through my guidebook that I had and figuring like, oh, there's this town. It's only two miles from the trailhead. So I can road walk or hitchhike the two miles to the town and figure things out from there. Well, the town ended up being like a single convenience store surrounded by (laughs) two houses and like a bunch of cow fields. And there was almost nothing there. And I had no cell service and I had no cash. That was very poor planning on my part. Thank God this woman who runs this convenience store, she seemed very suspicious of me, but she let me use her phone to call a trail angel that was listed in the guidebook. And thank God this gentleman was available to drive like 45 minutes to come pick me up to take me to my car. And like it was raining and it was just a it was not a very safe situation. Um, And I really regret that I let myself get into that situation. I like to think that I've learned from that. I always carry cash now for one thing. (laughs) But I think also like kind of that cockiness that I said I try to avoid now. I think that really knocked me down a couple pegs of like, maybe I shouldn't just assume that I'm ready for another 16 to 18 mile day right off the bat when I haven't hiked in a while. You know, because that's the problem with through hiking is you get this like superwoman complex. Like I hiked the AT, I can do anything. I have hiked 30 miles in a day. So why can't I just go out and do that again? Um, yeah. And your body is just not letting you do that. <laughs> um, so that was a very uh, discouraging experience. And that was my first um, section hike of the summer in 2017. And it really made me reevaluate my plans. So, But the nice thing is when I did go back and cut my miles way back and lowered my expectations, I had a great time and I loved the trail and it was fun instead of brutal. And I really enjoyed the rest of my time in Vermont. So yeah, I think having that quick like change of plans. Um, that was one case where it did not go so well, but I hope I learned enough from it that now like I'm better prepared, better prepared in the future to, uh, 
leave options open and be more adaptable. I hope. I don't know. Maybe I'll forget it all the next time I plan a section hike. We'll see. There's always a little, a little ego involved. Oh, for sure. Through hikers have a lot of ego. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> As I'm sure you know, having spoken with plenty of them. Yes. Yes. It's an interesting ego, though. And and that's what, that's probably one of the things that I find most interesting and entertaining about it is no matter how many trails you've done, they've done, each new trail is a new set of challenges. Mm-hmm. And it's going to slap you upside the head if you're not listening. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I think there's probably enough ego to feel like I can take this on. And then hopefully also enough humility to realize you still need to like prepare for it and plan for it. And it could still throw some surprises your way. So yeah, it's a good point is it's like an interesting balance of, you know, you wouldn't even attempt a through hike if you didn't have some ego, but as long as you balance it with a little bit of like this willingness to learn and this open mindset, hopefully everything's going to work out safely and you're not going to end up stranded or stuck or overcommitted or something for sure. It's it's entertaining for a bystander. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Everything is twenty twenty in hindsight, too, right? Yeah. Like, oh, I was so stupid. I should have known better. But at the time, it seemed like a great idea. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> how much How much night hiking did you do? Oh, not much. Um, I don't love night hiking. I I know some people who do love it. I'm not scared of it. I just feel like it requires so much more mental energy. And I like to kind of zone out to some extent when I'm hiking and just kind of get into the rhythm. And night hiking, I was always afraid I'd like lose the trail or walk into something or, you know, miss a blaze or miss a turn. Um, so the couple times I did night hike, I had to slow way down and be just like extra careful and extra diligent. Um, and it worked out fine, but it's not my preferred way of traveling. Definitely would rather be settled with a little daylight still left. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I, I can see like the AT is a different would be a different experience night hiking than say the PCT or the CDT, you know, particularly when you're getting up into like the Alpine areas and it's so open and ridges and that kind of stuff. Yeah. There were times on the JMT, it was even a little tricky to figure out where the trail went. Cause you're just looking at this massive sprawling open mountaintop or scree slope. And yeah. the only thing to guide you is like, this looks a little bit smoother here and a little bit rougher <laughs> over there. So I'm going to assume like, this is the way the trail goes navigation is not my strong suit. So personally, I'd rather have all the visual cues I could get. But if you're confident yeah. and you're in an area that's well marked, then I think it could be a really fun way to travel. Just uh, not necessarily something I've done enough of to feel really confident in. And and I think at this point, we're so used to looking at our phones, you know, looking at gut hooks, looking at, you know, whatever the half mile or whatever the guide is, mm-hmm. um, that how many of mm-hmm. us really know how to navigate properly? <laughs> Yeah. And that's something that concerns me is like, if I was stuck somewhere with a dead phone battery and no guidebook, I might actually really struggle. So, um, and I'm sure plenty of other people would as well. And I know everybody, like you said, they use these gut hooks and everything and they're an amazing tool and have really made through hiking a lot safer. But the problem is, yeah, when you rely on them without any sort of backup, I think you can get yourself into some not so great situations. So, uh, I I would recommend definitely doing a map and compass class if you're going to be anywhere other than like a really, really well-marked trail like the AT. Um, Yeah. Which, I mean, I say that, but I haven't done it. But I would love to. I'd love to learn how to use a map and compass someday. I just haven't gotten around to it. I know. I think it would be pretty cool. I Actually, it's, it's interestingly, funnily enough, I think having those skills 
is sort of badass, actually. <laughs> Not to say <laughs> like that I have those survivor. Skills, but exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Survivor man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you can, like, go out into the woods off trail and you're not staying at shelters every night, like, through hiking's easy. Everything is marked and you know mm-hmm. where to stop and these trails are so well-traveled. Um, you look at something like the Hayduke Trail or some of these, oh like, um, the Pacific Northwest Trail, like, they really intimidate me mostly because of the navigation. So if that's something you can learn how to do, then you're just, like, light years ahead of everybody who relies on the white blazes and the cairns and everything. So, yeah, for sure. I I definitely on my list of skills to acquire and practice and get confident in for sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. Yeah. Now there was, there was quite an interesting picture of you. (laughs) Okay. Drinking a boxed wine in a dryer. (laughs) What the what? Oh, that was um, probably one of my hiker trashier days. Uh, So that was in, (laughs) That was in Shenandoah. Um, my mom was actually driving down to South Carolina from New Jersey for vacation to see some family she has down there. And so she said, all right, I will meet you at this wayside in Shenandoah. Um, and I will take you and your friends to a hotel and we can all spend the night and relax and I'll do a little trail magic. So just meet me there which was great, except that she got lost or stuck in traffic. And like, we ended up spending like eight hours at this wayside and it was pouring rain. It was cold. We got there at like 10 o'clock in the morning and we had nothing to do. And we were just like huddling in this laundry room because it was the only enclosed space. And so after we'd like eaten everything we could eat out of the convenience store, we decided to start drinking because that's naturally the next step. (laughs) And, you know, it's nice and warm in there and, you know, we're all emaciated and so we can't hold our drinks like maybe we used to be able to (laughs) and we're bored and silly and there's nobody around because it's raining and and that's when you end up drinking boxed wine inside a dryer. I mean, (laughs) if you you haven't lived it, you can't understand it, but I promise it seemed like a good idea at the time. (laughs) So, oh, and then my poor mother shows up and we're all like drunk and smelly and she's like what have you been doing for the past three months is this your life now and I was like well yeah kind of and thank god she loves me unconditionally (laughs) thank god she pulls you out of the dryer and yep yeah and we're she's relying on us to help navigate her and nobody can like hold their phone straight to gp use the gps and Oh, she's a very patient person. She had like six through hikers squeezed into her car. She said she's like never smelled anything so terrible. <laughs> yeah, there is the smell. Always yeah. the smell. Yeah, it's unavoidable. You you stop smelling it after a little while. How speaking of eating everything in sight, uh-huh. how were you with hiker hunger? Interesting question. Uh, so I studied nutrition for a little while. So I think hiker hunger is really fascinating. As I understand it, it takes a while to kick in. So people who yeah. talk about being on like a three day backpacking trip and feeling hiker hunger, that's not necessarily what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, so like true, like insatiable hiker hunger, it takes a while to kick in, but then eventually your metabolism kind of levels out. So a lot of people lose weight, a lot of weight in the first month or so, and then kind of level out and don't feel it as intensely. Or at least that was my experience is like going through, I don't know, maybe Virginia and maybe the central bit. So like month two was probably when it was at its peak. And I would like 
eat a whole pizza by myself and you just feel like you're snacking constantly and like your stomach is never full um, and you're never satisfied. I lost, I lost like 12 pounds or something in the first month. Like I was clearly not getting enough calories and I was like quite slender to start with. So that was not good. But yeah, eventually it's not even, at least for me, I didn't feel hungry. I just felt like I was never full. So you just snack constantly. But um, some things that helped were like, adding um, olive oil into my dinner. So you add in like a couple tablespoons of olive oil and it adds a few hundred calories. And I think that helped. So it helped my, um, my weight loss level out. It could have been my metabolism leveling out. I think I also like made a real effort to eat more, even if I wasn't feeling super hungry. Cause sometimes if it's really hot out and you're exercising and you're hiking, you might actually lose your hunger. And a lot of people feel yeah. like, Oh, I should be eating which is probably the case. But um, again, if you're just out for a couple of days, your body has enough fat in reserve that you don't have to eat if it's just going to make you sick. You kind of have to listen to your body. And, you know, if you have concerns, talk to a doctor or talk to a dietitian. Um, I am not either of those things. It's just kind of my own experience. But yeah, it's very real. And you have to definitely make an effort to get enough calories. And even then, sometimes you just can't, you physically can't carry or eat enough calories to stop the weight loss. So everybody's going to have a different experience with it. But yeah, it's it's definitely a real thing for sure. Well, and I saw, I'm not sure if it was on the track or if it was on Instagram, where you actually kind of listed out and were sort of counting the calories that you ate in a day and yeah. and how many it was and and that type of thing. I did. Yeah, there was one day specifically, it was right around my one month trail anniversary because that's when I like really saw myself in a mirror. Um, and weighed myself and realized how much I had lost. Um, and that's when I was thinking I should really like make an effort here to not lose any more weight. And I like, I didn't get my period the whole five months because I was so like emaciated. It was probably, probably pretty unhealthy, but yeah, there was one day specifically where I tried to eat as much as I possibly could. And I think it came out to like 4,000 calories and change. And that was literally like constantly snacking as I'm walking and just constantly putting food in my face. And I even like stopped and cooked a hot lunch, which I never did and ate double portions on everything. And yeah, it was like just about 4,000 calories. And then when I looked up approximately how many I'd burned, it was like just over 4,000. So even on this day when I was making a conscious effort to just stuff my face, there, there was still just no way to keep up with it. So I think it's really key, at least on the AT or in towns often enough, if you can try to really hit like a calorie surplus when you're in town, and especially like a nutrient surplus, get some vegetables in you. Um, I think that probably really makes a difference for people who otherwise struggle. But if you're doing the PCT and you're only in town once every two weeks or something, um, that would definitely be a challenge for some people. So it's it can be pretty unhealthy, not to mention all the food you're eating is garbage um, yeah. for the most part, unless you really plan ahead or make your own meals. So it's a challenge for sure. Um, I'm a little embarrassed by some of the stuff I eat on the trail, but <laughs> you just eat what your body needs at the time. Yeah. And it's interesting because your body does, I mean, aside from the sheer volume of food that it's asking for, your body does and and the taste, your body's indications to you about what what tastes good or what it wants um, mm-hmm. are really big indicators of what it needs. Yeah. Yeah. So you should listen to that. If you're desperately craving something sweet or something salty or some vegetables, you should 
probably try to pay some attention to that and make yeah. an effort to get your body what it's craving. Yeah. So you, you really learn to get in tune with your body and listen to it while you're hiking. And that's, you know, a really nice side effect is then hopefully you're able to figure out what it is that you need and hopefully act accordingly as much as you can with limited resources and limited time. So yeah, that's, it's a challenge for sure. Two questions. Sure. One is, do you look back on that list of food and it, and does it now three years later amaze you at the sheer quantity of it? <laughs> um, some days, yes. Some days, well, okay, I'm pregnant now, so I'm so, probably eating like a through hiker again. Yeah. Um, so maybe not so much recently, but mostly it's not even the quantity. It's just like the sheer like crappiness of the food <laughs> um, is really shameful. Like I'm a vegetarian, so I was able to maintain that at least. But we're talking like a pizza and ice cream and chips and junk food vegetarian. Like by no means was it a healthy diet. It was at that point just an ethical vegetarianism thing. Because um, I was certainly not eating like actual plants. Um, I love yeah. how you call it an ethical vegetarian. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, most of the in the real world, I think being vegetarian is probably healthier. But on the trail, when you're eating just sheer garbage, um, you can't really make that argument anymore. It's not really a it's not really a healthy diet, no matter what you're eating at that point. It um, it's interesting because it almost seems like on the trail, based on the type of food that a lot of people eat and base, and the type of food that's available, particularly if you're having to shop at like convenience stores and things like that, mm-hmm. that being vegetarian there is almost to a detriment because it, at least if you eat meat or whatever, then you can do, you know, I don't, I'm not that into vegetarianism, but you can do, you can do salamis, you can do sausages, you can do cheese, you can do some of these other products um, that will get calories and maybe pseudo a little bit healthier than some of the calorie dense crap that is eaten? Um, yes and no. I think a lot of the food that's like shelf stable enough to take backpacking is almost it's accidentally crap. vegetarian. Well, yes, it's crap, <laughs> but it's like, you're not going to take like a, a nice, like chicken breast backpacking, you know, because it's just not going to keep. Um, so like you're looking at your pasta sides and your ramen and your, like dehydrated this and your freeze dried that it ends up kind of being vegetarian anyway, unless you choose to add in like tuna or a chicken packet, which, you know, I obviously wouldn't do, but plenty of my friends Mm -hmm. did. So yes, on the one hand, you might struggle to get enough calories regardless. I don't know that being vegetarian was a disadvantage in my real life. I'm mostly vegan and that would have been really hard to get enough calories just because if you're eating vegan food, then a lot of it is plant-based and it's just not going to be as calorie dense, which like, again, in the real world is generally a good thing. Um, but right. as a, if you're a backpacker and all you want is calories, then that could probably be a disadvantage. Now, I mean, they're probably, I mean, I know for sure there are loads of vegans and vegetarians who do their own dehydrating and they can absolutely yeah. make it work. But it does at that point take a little more effort to actually eat healthy vegetarian and vegan. But I'd say it's more work for everybody to eat healthy, not just for the vegetarians. So, um, yeah, I don't know that it's necessarily a disadvantage, but yeah, to each their own, whatever's going to make you as healthy as possible while still getting enough calories. It's, a, it's definitely a, a tricky balance for sure. It's interesting because the people that I've spoken to who have been on some sort of restricted diet because of, you know, whatever, because of either they're vegetarian, they're vegan, 
or they have um, medical issues that cause them to have to eat a certain way. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they have specifically either done the dehydration or whatever themselves, but essentially send themselves the resupply boxes because that they can, they can therefore monitor their food uh, in terms of. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, you know, a lot of people ask about doing food drops on the AT and I would tell them it's really not necessary 99% of the time, unless you have like strict dietary needs, because there will be times when you're resupplying in a gas station or a convenience store and, if you can't have, like, if you have celiac disease or you have a peanut allergy or something, then you actually might struggle to meet your your caloric needs. But I think for most people, yeah, you're going to be eating probably what would be considered junk, but you'll at least be able to probably meet your caloric needs as long as you're not super picky or super strict in your diet. Is there anything that you will never eat again? <laughs> I still can't really do trail mix. Um, my mom was so sweet. She like really wanted to help out. She really wanted to send me food drops, even though I told her it's not strictly necessary. Um, but she would put together little snack baggies for me. She'd like buy peanuts and M&Ms and raisins in bulk and then put them in these little single serve baggies for me and mail them to me. And it was so sweet, but I would be perfectly happy to never see another bag of trail mix again. (laughs) Uh, they, they became the, oh, thank you so much for the effort. Hiker box. Yeah. Well, I ate them. I didn't feel right getting rid of snacks that my mom like specifically put together and sent me. But it would be like, like, okay, I'm eating this as fuel and because I need to and not necessarily because I'm enjoying it at this point. So, um, yeah, thank you, mom. That was very sweet. And they definitely kept me going at the time. And I appreciated them at the time. (laughs) And now it's been three years and I'm still perfectly happy not eating raisins and and M&Ms and peanuts ever. <laughs> it, it sounds like you're putting a disclaimer on this episode if your mom has I know. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Hi, mom. Thank you. It was awesome. I ate every single baggie of trail mix that you sent me for sure. Uh, disclaimer closed. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> so you, I think as we've established, you are a note taker. You are a detail, detailed person. Mm-hmm. And, and you have some pretty detailed notes on the gear that you used and why you used it and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. The gear, like doing my research on gear was something that made me feel like I'm in control and I'm prepping appropriately for this. So that was something I spent a lot of time on before the trail and then, you know, taking notes to try to help other people after the trail who might be in my same situation of like, I need to know the exact setup and weight and specs of this piece of gear um, in order to prepare for my through hike. So I sympathize with those people and <laughs> I tried to write gear reviews whenever possible to try to help them out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Where, <laughs> where would people best be able to find those gear reviews, those write-ups, that kind of stuff that you did? Um, those mostly live on the website that I run now um, called allwomenalltrails.com. So that's the um, one of the Facebook groups that I help run. And then we launched a kind of companion website because these questions do come up over and over again. And we wanted a repository of all that information. So that's where I've tried to put everything now at this point. So you can search that website or if you find me on Facebook or through the website, you can just shoot me a message and I'm happy to uh, share my gear opinions ad nauseum for sure. <laughs> yeah. And, and cause it sounded like you, I mean, 
it helped you feel in control of it by doing the research and stuff like that. But you are also a, a more petite woman and weight was a big concern for you. Yes. And that's somewhere like they say, what is it? The triad of gear. Like you can get something cheap, Mm -hmm. you can get something light or you can get something good quality, but you can only pick two out of those three. So I went with good quality and light um, at the expense of a lot of expense. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think I spent like $2,000 on gear, getting everything brand new um, in prep for my through hike. And, you know, my disclaimer there as well is you certainly do not need to spend that much to be successful. And you can absolutely do it on a much stricter budget than what I was working with. But for me, I was willing to, you know, work extra hours and extra jobs to be able to afford the lightest, best, most durable gear that I could get because I felt like that was just one more kind of tick in my column of like, hopefully, if I didn't have to think about it, or my gear was lighter, that's one less thing that could slow me down or stop me. So I am an ultralight advocate to the point that you can still be comfortable. It's certainly not necessary to be successful, but I think it can make a big difference in your, um, your early comfort in the trail if you're carrying less weight. And I also think that kind of the, the Boy Scout motto of being prepared and bringing lots of stuff just makes you more likely to rely on the stuff and less like prepared in your skills. So um, I would generally choose fewer lighter weight things than more things just in case or for a little extra comfort. But that's something that I learned through experience and I, I wouldn't force that on anybody if they feel more comfortable bringing more stuff and more comfort then that's certainly their choice and that's going to what's going to make them successful what was your favorite piece of gear oh probably my quilt so i have an enlightened equipment quilt and i think it's partly my favorite because just like getting into bed each night is just such a good feeling when you're warm and comfortable and knowing that i could rely on that to feel that way um, there's a lot of emotional <laughs> attachment to my quilt. Um, yeah, and I'm also a very cold sleeper. So I was just grateful that it kept me warm most of the time and was also lightweight and comfy. And I took a chance on a quilt because I'd never used one before. And it ended up really working out well for me. Um, so shout out to Enlightened Equipment. I still use it three years later on camping and backpacking trips. And I love it. And my husband has one now. And I tell everybody they need to try one out. And then also my backpack. I had a Gossamer Gear backpack. And it was the perfect blend of being ultralight, but still having some structure. Like I needed a backpack with a frame and it was really comfortable and um, they were, had great customer service. Like I swapped out uh, a different model and it was no problem. Um, And I just loved it and I never had any problems with it. And it still holds up like almost brand new after five months of through hiking. So I just appreciate really well-made gear. I appreciate that they're small local companies and not like, you know, some giant, corporate, whatever that everybody goes mm-hmm. with just because they know the name. So I just really appreciate, they feel like discoveries and I feel like they didn't let me down with uh, me taking a chance on a less well-known brand. So um, both yeah. of those brands highly, highly recommend would tell anybody all day long to try them out. <laughs> yeah. And you, and you, when you went with the Gossamer gear pack, you had a smaller pack and then moved to a bigger pack, but still Gossamer gear, but, but a larger mm-hmm. pack. Yeah, I had it in my head that I could do a through hike with a 36 liter pack. And the reality was that everything just wasn't going to fit in there. So I just swapped up to a 40 liter, like nothing huge, still on the small side. But uh, yeah, I was I was hoping to sneak in with a 36 liter. And it just, <laughs> the reality was things just weren't going to fit. 
so yeah, it was no problem to like try that out for a few days and then they let me exchange it. And um, then the the 40 liter pack lasted me my whole through hike and performed really wonderfully. So yeah. And it's still fan. going strong, as you said. Still going strong. Yeah. It's my go-to backpack. Uh, if I need to carry a bear can, I go up, I have their 50 liter model as well. And that one is big enough for a bear can and all my stuff. And um, so I use that on the JMT, but for the 40 liter, if I don't need to carry a bear can, it, uh, it has more than enough room and it's rugged and comfortable. And yeah, I love it. What was your luxury item out there? Um, probably my Kindle. I think that's what people would probably consider my luxury item. Um, so I loved like getting into my backpack or getting into my sleeping bag <laughs> at the end of the day um, and just decompressing with a book that had nothing to do with hiking, like Harry Potter or something that just totally let me disconnect for a little while. Um, and I take my Kindle on every hiking trip I go on. And that's something I look forward to. If I'm hiking alone, I read my book while my water's boiling for dinner. If I'm hiking with friends, I just kind of turn my Kindle on when I'm, you know, read for 10 minutes and then fall asleep. And it's just a really nice, like, it feels like a luxury to be able to do that and just disconnect and just take a few minutes of time just to turn your brain off and relax. I love it. I will struggle with that. <laughs> <laughs> Turning your brain off. Turning my brain off. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You might get some practice if you're uh, doing nothing but walking for 10 or 12 hours a day. You learn how to kind of go into a meditative state. So I'd highly recommend a Kindle, but uh, I think you will also quickly learn how to relax and turn your brain off at will. You'll surprise yourself with how easy I think so. I think so. Yeah. When you can't just like turn your phone on and check Facebook or turn on Netflix, you kind of just, it gets very meditative and very peaceful and it's kind of a nice feeling. It's like, you're almost forced to be bored. And then that makes you kind of like kind of rewires your brain. I think it's probably a really good thing for us who are all connected all the time. Yeah. Well, and I, it's interesting because I find myself, you know, I, I turn 50 next year. So I was born in 1970, you know, before mm-hmm. all these phones and computers and apps and social media and all of that. And I find with the advent of all of that, and the more that I've gotten connected into it, like my attention span is the size of a freaking gnat. Yeah, it's terrible, right? And and I know it's not inherent to me because I used to be five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think these phones and everything. I mean, I sound like such an old timer, like these smartphones, these kids are all using. <laughs> but I think it like, I think it literally rewires your brain. And I find myself sometimes scrolling through Facebook or Instagram or Pinterest, and I literally can't stop. And it's just, it doesn't yeah. feel good, but it's kind of like, it's just so ubiquitous and so unavoidable. So yeah, I think that like that forced disconnection that we end up with when there is no service is a really good thing. Um, I mean, it's funny, you mentioned Uber before when we were talking about hitchhiking, like nobody used Uber when I was hiking. That wasn't, I mean, it's only been three years, but that wasn't a thing. Um, but like you would see as soon as we had service, like in a shelter, if there was service in the shelter, everybody's on their phone at night if you're on top of a mountain and all of a sudden there's a little bit of service, everybody like stops there and like checks <laughs> yeah. their Instagram. And it's just like, I totally, like, I 100% wanted to connect with my friends and family and let them know I was safe whenever I could. But I also like felt like it was taking away from the experience. So I think the the lack of service, although some people might argue it's a safety hazard, I think it's a really, really good thing when you're out hiking. It just makes you disconnect. Yeah. It, it It is pretty funny to see the pictures of people, like there's a group of people standing on the top of a mountain and everybody is literally looking down at their phone. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> 
I know. I know. It's kind of sad. It like feels really good at the time. And then you see a picture and it's kind of embarrassing that we all just like instantly, (laughs) (laughs) that's what we do, you know? Um, So yeah, it's, it's got its pros and cons. You can stay connected to people and reassure your loved ones, but then all of a sudden you're on Facebook and like playing Candy Crush and it's just not, not the, uh, (laughs) not the disconnected with the experience that you thought it might be. Yeah, exactly. What is your most cherished memory of your hike? Ooh, there's so many good ones. Um, you know, I think it's not any one memory. It's kind of like the habits and the things we got into as a trail family. So like some of our inside jokes and some of our, um, you know, our games that we would play at night and uh, like we were all, you know, listening to Harry Potter at the same time on audiobooks. So we would like <laughs> hang out in the shelter at night and like make Harry Potter references. And, um, you know, somebody would talk about where they were in the book and like everybody knew because we were all going through the same thing. And, um, or we'd like play that game where you put somebody's name on your forehead and you have to guess who you are. And we would do that a lot of nights and like just hang out and just be silly and you know nobody had their phone out because there was no service so everybody was just really present and really aware and you just feel very like tired and satisfied at the end of a long day and you just feel like you're a part of something with this trail family and doing something really cool and the people that I was hiking with they were I think very aware of what a good experience it was that we were having and wanted to be really present and really thoughtful so being surrounded by people like that, I felt like made my experience so much better because they made me appreciate it even more. Like we would play this game at dinner. Somebody would come up with like a really deep question, like, you know, what's a, a childhood memory that means a lot to you? Or like, I don't know, some some really deep, thoughtful thing where we had to stop and really think about it. And it made us, you know, really be present and and enjoy each other's company and really think about how we were feeling. So kind of like all of those moments where I was with people who were just totally focused and totally present, just living in the moment, that kind of feeling, I think, is like the biggest, happiest, warmest, fuzziest takeaway for me. That just doesn't happen that often in the real world where you're just with a group of people that you have this one really big thing in common with, and you're all totally focused on it and totally present and totally enjoying each other's company and listening to each other and really talking to each other. So yeah, more than any one moment, I think it's kind of that feeling of connecting to people. I think it's really special and really rare. And I got really lucky with the people that I was with. It's so interesting because it seems like, and and I'm going to just blame this on the universe, I think, but most of the time when I'm talking to people, what has made the trail so special for them are the people. You know, yeah. so it's like, it's almost like everybody finds their group, their tribe. Right. Yeah. It really does feel like a special tribe of very unique people. Cause you know, out there in the real world, you tell somebody you go hiking for five months at a time and they give you a look or they just don't process <laughs> it. Or so it, it felt very special to meet those people and everybody on the trail. And you know, the crazy thing is I started the trail at the end of April, there were people who were already a thousand miles ahead of me that I never met. And maybe I would have gotten along great with them too. And they would have been an awesome trail family. But the fact is that I met the people that I met when I met them and it just all worked out. And yeah, 
hikers, they are special people. And I think being able to spend time with them is just a really nice thing to be able to do. It's just not the same if you go alone. You know, I did most of the long trail and the John Muir trail alone, and they were fun and they were their own adventure and their own special alone meditative time. But it's just not the same as doing it with a group of like-minded people who are just as like passionate and interested in this thing as you are. So I completely agree. It is absolutely the people who make the difference. It's interesting now because of social media and stuff that the way that people connect through social media or, or what, what masquerades as connecting through social media. Mm. I, I honestly don't think it fulfills a basic human need that we have to actually connect. Yeah, that totally makes sense. It's a totally different kind of thing that our species isn't used to doing. Yeah. It's very, very new. So it, yeah, that totally makes sense that it doesn't actually feel like our need to socialize in the way that being with people present in the woods, talking to them, listening to them, really deeply connecting. Yeah, it's completely different. So you are a month out from, or hypothetically, you're a month out <laughs> from, from giving birth. Yeah, she is due at Thanksgiving. So we are inside a month now. It'll be four weeks tomorrow. Wow. Okay. So fast forward 10 years, whatever. So she's, she's of an age that could sort of maybe understand what mommy did on the 18th. And not to say <laughs> yeah. that mommy won't have done others trails by that point as well. Um, yeah. But what would you tell her about that? Oh, man, I tell her that her dad is an awesome, amazing, supportive partner, and she needs to not settle for anybody who's any less than that, first of all. Yeah, like if she wanted to through hike, or if she had interest in it, I'd approach it probably one way. If she had zero interest, I'd be kind of heartbroken, but I'd approach it a different way. But yeah, I think the biggest thing I'd want her to take away from it is that, you know, you're a girl or a woman in a world where girls and women are told that certain things aren't safe or it's not meant for them or, you know, all of your role models are a bunch of grizzly dudes with beards. And I hope <laughs> that she will look to me and see a role model for, you know, whatever it is she wants to do. If it's, you know, nothing to do with hiking, I still hope that she can see that I made a choice that was maybe selfish. Some people would see as selfish, but it was something that I really wanted to do for me and took a lot of planning and hard work and guts and sweat. And it was not glamorous and not, you know, the normal path that people take. And I hope that she sees a woman who did something for herself and, you know, was hopefully she sees that I was strong through something difficult and didn't quit on something difficult. And I hope that she can take that lesson aside from hiking and apply it to whatever it is that she wants to do. You know, I hope that she's resilient and tough and doesn't get discouraged by one bad day or one, you know, hard thing that doesn't come easily to her. And I hope that she can learn that lesson of um, perseverance and hard work and delayed gratification. And yeah, I'm so excited to be having a girl, partly because I feel like I have a lot to offer as a female role model to a daughter. Um, and I really, really hope that she gets something out of that and that I can support her in whatever it is she wants to do. And yeah, I hope I raise a, an awesome little feminist. 
<laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, I love how y- the message that you have is resonating, whether or not she or somebody else wants to ever get on the trail. You know, it's it's almost the trail was a vehicle. It's almost more. It's not necessarily just about that trail. Yeah, I, I like to think that you know anybody can strap a backpack on and walk for 2000 miles, but that doesn't have to be what your challenge is. You know, your challenge could be anything that's non-traditional or, you know, takes a year or more of planning and dedication or something where people question you or think you're crazy. And yeah, hopefully there are other deeper life lessons than just like how to pitch a tent successfully and how to take care of your feet. Like, I just think there's so much more to it. And I hope that people who have through hiked feel that. And I hope that people who haven't through hiked can see that and hopefully take that lesson. And, you know, a lot of people think they're a failure if they quit a hike or only do sections, but Mm -hmm. I think there's so much more to it than just the actual mileage that you do. I think there's just so many life lessons to be learned from through hiking and distance hiking. And yeah, I hope that that comes through when I talk to people and hopefully when they talk to me, that would be awesome. If I can kind of help people be inspired, that would be super gratifying. And I guess even more specifically, more pointedly for women that, you know, whether it's, whether again, whether it's a through hike or it's something else, if they have an interest in doing something and are afraid or have fear about it, actually, you know what is so funny? I'm literally saying this and I'm looking at my, my notes for you. And I have this quote on the notes that basically is from one of your Instagram feeds. Sometimes the fear won't go away, so you'll have to do it afraid. Yeah, I cannot take credit for writing that. I think that was a Pinterest find. But um, yeah, I mean, it's true. You're never going to feel ready. You're never going to feel like completely competent and confident. You're never going to feel like, yes, I can absolutely 100% no doubt do this. But if you just sit back and wait to feel that 100% confidence, you're never going to get there. So you know, just start walking and start planning and start looking into it. And you'll learn along the way and you'll make mistakes and you'll be uncomfortable and tired and dirty and hungry and you'll feel discouraged, but you have to at least try. And you have to understand that things are never going to be perfect and line up perfectly for you to do it. And, you know, it's the same thing people say for having kids. Like you're never ready for it. You just have to go (laughs) for it and figure it out as you go. So yeah, coming back to totally cheesy quotations. I'm a big fan of that one. (laughs) Just you're going to be scared. Just do it anyway. Just jump in, see what happens. You know, be safe, plan what you can, but understand that some things are also out of your control and you're just going to have to accept that. And every time you do that, what you fear becomes a little bit less. What your world is becomes a little bit more. Totally. Yeah. I think you get more confident every time you take on something crazy and you know, my very first backpacking trip, I was a mile in and thought I was going to die and thought that I would never be able to do this. And then, you know, within three years, I had through hiked the AT. So like, as you expand your comfort zone, the things that are possible also expand. And before you know it, you know, you're a whole new person with a whole new set of possibilities and nothing changed about you. Maybe you got a little stronger, you've got a little more muscle in your legs, but it's mostly just, you know, trying it and being more willing to take that kind of risk and being more willing to be afraid and do it anyway. Yeah, it's mostly in your head. It is. It's such a mental game. So true. <laughs> so is there anything that we haven't talked about that you feel like we should? 
Ooh, good question. Ah, yeah, I think kind of touching on the psychology of it, I think is really important. Um, whether you're talking about through hiking or section hiking or just taking on any big challenge, you know, it's super fun. Like it was me weighing all of my gear and literally tracking a spreadsheet with ounces and cost <laughs> and everything. But like, but the main thing is really the psychological aspect of it. Um, you know, we have women, I hear women every single day who say, well, what if I, I really want to through hike, but what if I can't do it? What if I quit? Well, you know, you might quit. And everybody pretty much who I know on the AT who quit did it with, you know, peace in their heart with the decision. It wasn't like anybody was forcing them off the trail. And other than the rare injury, nobody who wanted to be on the trail wasn't on the trail. So if you quit, it's because you've gotten what you needed out of it. You tried it. It wasn't what you expected or it wasn't what you wanted, but you're still going to learn from it. And at least then you know you tried. So don't worry so much about whether you can do it. Just figure out how to make it happen and at least give it a shot. And I think you owe yourself that little bit of effort and that little bit of outside your comfort zone to just try it and see what happens. And you never know. Yeah. And and I think you you make a very good point that getting on the trail and, and doing whatever part of it that you do, if you don't complete it, you've gotten what you needed out of that moment. The trails aren't going anywhere. You can always come back if. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I met people in their 70s who were through hiking or who had section hiked for the past 80 years and, you know, or not 80 years, but, you know, a nice long time, 20 years maybe to finish the trail. Yeah. And they're doing the same amount of miles as a through hiker. If anything, it's even harder to section hike because you have to focus for 20 years instead of just for five months. Like, there's no shame in section hiking. And in many ways, I think it's the harder thing to do. So don't feel like you have to do a through hike. Don't feel like you have to commit to an entire summer. Just figure out a way to make it happen. If you want to be out there, just go out and do it. It just doesn't have to be that complicated. Again, as long as you're being safe. But just just try it. You never know. You might love it. You might hate it. But at least you'll know and at least you'll have tried. And you'll have some good stories. <laughs> there are always good stories. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anybody's ever come back and said, well, that was kind of boring. <laughs> there is literally nothing to tell you about this hike. <laughs> it was completely unremarkable. <laughs> I think that's literally a quote from something. I don't know what it is, but I'm thinking there's a quote there. <laughs> Probably not from a trail, though. I can guarantee that. Probably not from a trail. Where can people find you if they want to follow your continuing adventures or reach out to you with further questions? Yeah, I'm always happy to chat. So I'm on Instagram at Nicole Young one and that's Nicole with an H. So I don't post very much there, but I'm always checking out other people's adventures. Um, I also help run the Facebook group, the Instagram and the website for all women, all trails. And that is obviously a, a women's only group, but you can find it out and join it or you can anybody can follow the Instagram or read the website. There's also an all women, all trails at gmail.com that we run. Um, so I did not found that group. That's the fantastic Bunny Kramer, uh, who's super inspirational, but I have been very um, honored to be a part of helping run it for the past couple of years. So it's an amazing community of female hikers and all kinds of really great inspiration from beginners up to, you know, like Anish is a member of the group and, you know, like legendary through hikers and people willing to just share their wisdom and support. So I'm very active there. Um, yeah. And I'm always happy to chat with people and meet new hikers and hopefully encourage the next generation of, of female adventures, my daughter included. 
Now, I know that you have, you did some articles for the Trek and stuff like that. Is that also Mm -hmm. on the All Women All Trails website or is that separate from, or those those blogs? I think I, yeah, I reposted some of like the more evergreen stuff, like my gear list or like, Mm -hmm. you know, how much it cost me. I reposted some of that on All Women All Trails, but my actual trail journals live on the Trek. Those are uh, a little out of date now, but I think you could still find them there if you're curious. Definitely. Very cool. Okay. Cool. What are you going to do when you're through hiking? Is somebody going to take over? I don't know yet. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you are able to figure something out. And also, if you don't, and you just want to focus on your through hike, I'm sure your audience would understand. Yeah, well, it's funny that you say focus on your through hike. Um, And I'm in the process of picking up a job that will be going on while I am hiking. And I need to figure out how to juggle both things. Oh boy. Um, And I was, I was talking to my therapist about this. I'm like, yeah, you know, I could do like, I'll just get a new iPad and it's a little bit lighter weight. And I'll just, you know, every, just figure everybody needs to know up front that about every three to five days when I come into town is when I can do meetings and things like that. And she just laughed at me. But anyway. (laughs) Well, like I said, you're not going to know what works until you try it. Right. Yeah. No, exactly. Exactly. I know there's a way. I know yes, there's a way. Where there's a will, to... there's a way. <laughs> I just have to figure out what that is. Good. Well, I will look forward to seeing how you um, prep and conquer that. You and me both. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get there. Oh, I, I love your confidence. <laughs> well, this was really fun. It's really nice to relive uh, my heyday as an adventurer when I'm, you know, like... <laughs> waddling around now and can't even breathe going up the stairs. It makes me (laughs) remember I have done interesting things. (laughs) You have done hard things before. Yes. This too will one day be a memory. (laughs) This is, this is an adventure of a different type. It really is. It's totally true. Do you find, uh, this is going to be a really random question and completely related to through hiking, but I just, I'm finding in my life right now that, you know, I'm turning 50 next year um, Mm -hmm. and that there are certain things that happen as you get older or as you get pregnant and have a baby or as, you know, there's so many different types of women experiences that just are not talked about. Oh, totally. What I love about your response to my question about your daughter and what would you tell your daughter? Because women are so often, girls actually are so often taught not to speak up, not Mm -hmm. to create dissent, not to do the scary things, you know, to Mm -hmm. look pretty and, you know, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Don't rock the boat. Keep things nice and civil. Exactly. And so you don't hear the stories. You don't talk about the things and you don't hear the stories. And it's interesting because I've, in the last two years, um, so I'm a late bloomer, but uh, I've kind of started to find my creative voice. Like I said, I was, I'm in production, uh, TV and film production, mm-hmm. and I've started to find my voice and, and, dip my toes into directing and that kind of thing. And, and the thing that I've found that most inspires me, that is most interesting to me is to tell a story from a woman's perspective 
you know, to, to both highlight that perspective and give voice to that perspective, but also to create a space for conversation, both within a community of women, but also between women and men, because so often men have no idea about what that conversation is. You know, you can't, you can't do things if you don't see other people like you doing them. So to have more female role models and female voices is only going to compound into more female visibility. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, uh, I am doing my small part. (laughs) Hey, every little bit helps. Yeah. It's funny. Like I was speaking of a woman, a person who is perimenopausal and, and so forth. And, but I have, now I have friends who are having, who are older than me, who are having hot flashes, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and to watch somebody, to see somebody have that experience where they are perfectly fine one moment and then all of a sudden they are flush red and they are sweating profusely is terrifying because you know you're going to get there at some point but also uh-huh. kind of funny and particularly if but you know what I mean like because all of a sudden they're fanning themselves frantically and like that whole thing but it made me realize that you don't see that represented in film and TV you don't see that represented in entertainment yeah yeah, that's a good point. I'm like trying to think of an example and like occasionally you see it as like a comedic moment. But yeah, I don't know that I've ever like seen menopause discussed as a plot point in any sort of entertainment now that you're mentioning yeah. it. I don't I don't know much about it except hearing whatever my mom feels like sharing. Mm-hmm. But actually, we get questions in the Facebook group like women who are menopausal, what do you do if you're out hiking and it's hot and you absolutely can't cool down? Or like if you're in a mummy bag and all of a sudden you've sweat through your mummy bag and now you're shivering, like these are just not questions that men even think about, but they're things that women do have to think about. So yeah, absolutely. Like getting that out there and getting people talking about it, that's awesome. It can only help more people than feel comfortable discussing it. And and I love that you just made that note because I need to get a sleeping bag. And honestly, that is one of the the things that I think about. Like right now, again, this is (laughs) more information than you need, but right now I'm not having any issues during the day with, with uh, sweats or whatever, but I do have night sweats on occasion. Yeah. And what are you going to do if you're in a sleeping bag or a shelter and you can't like unzip fast enough or you like sweat through your sleeping bag and now your down is wet and it's not going to keep you warm. Like these are safety issues. Yeah. Exactly. And so that's my, that's my internal debate. Like what, what sleeping bag do I choose? How do you know, that has to be able to do the things that you were literally just talking about. So yeah. Well, gosh, I don't even know how to approach that. So I wish you good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not expecting you to, but it, but it is interesting. It, and again, this, I guess it, it also illuminates the other side of things, which is that so often I think that there is this perception that we are alone because nobody is having the conversations. Yeah. So you think I must be the only person who is having this issue because nobody else is talking about it. So obviously it's just me. Yeah. So obviously like perimenopausal women aren't hiking because nobody's talking about it. So what business do I have being out there? Like it's clearly not a thing that's done. I'm terrible for even considering it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's so interesting. The stories we tell ourselves are so interesting. (laughs) 
and you don't even realize it. It's like in the no. the Matrix, right? Like you don't even know that it's a thing until all of a sudden your eyes are open and you see yep. the light, and then it's like you can't unsee it. Yep. Amen. Oh, I could go on all night. <laughs> and I can't wait to see how the adventure continues for you. <laughs> it's going to be a lifestyle change for sure, but I'm already thinking about like PCC 2030. We'll see. And links for Nicole's gear can be found on our website at hiking-through.com. Special thanks to Nicole for sharing her stories from the trail and Maya Wynn for the use of the song, Try Again. If you have through-hiking adventures to share, I'd love to hear them. So please email me at hikingthroughpodcast at gmail.com or you can also DM me on Instagram at hikingthroughpodcast. If you like what we're doing here, we'd also love it if you'd find us on your favorite podcast provider, and leave a review. I'll see you on the trail.